0: In choir, here's a, here's a freebie, or in choir. In college, I sang in choir. Okay, we have a karaoke champion in our midst here. In in college, Char is a karaoke champion. She's going to states. one state finals? Next weekend. Shar next weekend. won't be here next weekend. She's going to be taking it. Is this like a Pitch Perfect kind of thing? Do you dress up for it? Yes! It's uh, so... Uh, But I sang in choir. I was a music major for those two awful years. And uh, I I had to be in choir. And choir, for me, was not fun. Some people really enjoyed it. I did not. I sang bass. I brought everyone down an octave like Elf did. (laughs) Uh, And and I, I just kind of went through it. Our choir director, Dr. E is what we called him, he ran choir like a boot camp. He was so fixated on how we walked in, how we stood, And then how we walked out. This was what we spent the first three weeks of choir doing. Tuesday and Thursday afternoons for three hours. Walk in. I had to be this far away from my friend named Con Holiday. If I was one step closer, I'd be in trouble. We'd have to start over. We spent hours walking in, standing, walking out. This was life. And towards the end of it all, I started getting a little chippy, as if you would imagine. And I said, when are we going to learn how to sing? Because we're doing a great job at making rules. We're doing a great job at following rules. But right now, we're not singing. Are we any good? I'm not. I'm here because I have to be here. I'm here so I won't get fined like Marshawn. But I'm just, when are we going to do what we're supposed to do? When are we going to sing the songs? And uh, our friend Nicodemus is sort of trapped in that same kind of life. He has, he's a teacher of the Jews. That's what John calls him. He's a teacher of the teachers of the Jews. He's a teacher of the Pharisees. He's a big deal. He knows his Bible in and out, backwards and forwards. He knows it all. And here he's, he, he knows the rules. He knows what to do. He knows how to look. He knows how far he has to be away from Khan in order to walk in. And that's his whole life. Religion, 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 religion. He is firmly in this camp of legalism. He spent his whole life studying, it's called every jot and tittle, and weighing it with logic. He knew faith, but however, Nicodemus did not know faith's power. He did not know its effects. He was living in a faith that turned to burden. He was more concerned with what people thought of him. He he was more concerned with boundaries. And if the boundaries of his didn't match the boundaries of yours, then you couldn't be friends, you couldn't live together, and probably you wouldn't end up in heaven. And so this is the life that Nicodemus is used to. And so he comes through there and he tows the company line. He does everything he's supposed to do. He looks right, but Nicodemus knew how to walk, knew where to stand, but I don't think Nicodemus knew how to sing very well because he comes to Jesus at night and something different about Jesus is happening. And we start to see this process with Nicodemus and we see it in our own lives too. There's a process where we realize that what we're doing isn't working. You come to the end of yourself. It's not working. You have this realization. And then after you have this realization, there's a time where you begin to wrestle because you know this isn't working and you know that's where you want to be over there. And so you start wrestling back and forth because you're awakening to this new way of life. After you wrestle, after you fight for a while, you end up accepting it. And then you end up living into the newness or the new identity that Christ might have for you. This is the process that Nicodemus is on. This is what we're going to look at today. A, uh, a realization, a wrestling, and a newness. Let's look at the, the realization first. Have you ever had a realization that you're going the wrong way? You're driving down the road. Google tells you uh, 500 feet. Do any of you know what 500 feet is? No. Okay, at 500 feet, turn left. This happened the other day. We were going to lunch. At 500 feet, turn left. How far is 500 feet? I don't know. Signs around here are terrible. Okay, pretty soon you're too far, and now you have to make a U-turn. There's a realization that you have. Carrie and I don't go on a road trip until I make three U-turns at least. This is what we do. And so there's a realization, though. You come to this point where either you can say... I'm going to fight this realization that I have and I'm going to keep going down this wrong way until I make it right or I'm going to give up, flip the U-turn, maybe it's illegal, I don't know, but you're going to turn around and you're going to go back to where you come from. Nicodemus has a realization. I think he's been watching Jesus for some time. John doesn't go in chronological order. John is telling a little bit of a story and he's putting facts around what he wants us to learn about Jesus. And so I think Nicodemus has been watching Jesus for some time. He's a, he's a teacher of the Jews. He's been paying attention. He has to. Jesus is encroaching on his expertise. Jesus is talking about the law in different ways. And now he's wanting to come to Jesus because the way Jesus talks about the law, the way Jesus embodies the law, the way Jesus talks about God and this freedom and this life that Jesus is offering is different than anything that Nicodemus has ever seen. And so now he says, I have to see this. And so he goes to Jesus and he goes to Jesus at night and there's a whole bunch of reasons why he might go at night. John is very clear that he is, he is a, a member of the ruling council. Nicodemus is a very, very busy person. And so perhaps one of the reasons that Nicodemus went at night is this is the only time he could go. There's a whole bunch of thoughts on why he would have gone. Maybe, maybe he's so busy during the day, he goes home, puts the kids to bed, then after 7.30 he's kind of free and he can go meet uh, jesus that 's what it would be in my house that 's the time where I can leave because the kids are asleep. things are settled. I can go, so maybe it 's something like that, or or maybe Nicodemus is a little bit ashamed maybe he 's busy, maybe he wants to hide maybe he doesn 't want his legalist friends knowing that he 's going to go talk to Jesus, and so he hides he 's busy about it he doesn 't want them to see it, and so he goes and he sees Jesus in secret where he won't be seen. Here is the high teacher of Israel going to see another teacher. What would people think of him? This could be bad. There's another reason, there's possible another reason why he would have done this, is John does a lot of things with the literary style. John uses words and phrases where he'll say, and this was a sign, and then on this day, John days count to six, He's rebuilding creation, the creation story. And so, but but John does a bunch of things. And one of his literary styles is he shows people in darkness. And then after they have an encounter with Jesus, he talks about light. Or he might talk about a new day or something has happened. When the resurrection happens, uh, he says there is a new day dawning. At the dawn of the new day, Mary met Jesus. And so there's a bunch of literary styles that John plays with. I think it's a little bit of everything. Here you have somebody who's a little afraid to come to Jesus. He's afraid what what people will think about him. And he's in a place where he's in a dark way of life. It's not working for him. His his life isn't offering the freedom that he so chose or that he thought he was going to get. He's trapped in the dark world of rules and regulations. There's a word for that. It's called legalism. And this is where he's stuck. Maybe it was all of it. However, he saw something in Jesus up until Jesus, Nicodemus' faith didn't need God. His faith was about innocence instead of forgiveness. He was trapped in a systematic process of defending himself, explaining himself, exalting himself, and justifying himself. Nicodemus came from the camp that was more obsessed with themselves than they were from God. And so now he comes to, he marches up to Jesus, and he knew all about marching, but he didn't know about singing. And look how he greets Jesus. Rabbi, teacher. There's not a lot of power in that greeting. Yes, Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus was a teacher. But Nicodemus comes to him in a way of he is wanting more information so that he can live a life that he wants to live. He's looking for an answer that he can know. He wants to put his hands around it. He wants to understand it. Jesus Teacher, yes, he was a teacher, but that's not all Jesus was. There's a lot more than just facts and figures with Jesus. But Nicodemus, that's the world he's in. And so he asked the question, Rabbi, teacher, Rabboni is the word. You're doing these things, and there's no way any of this could happen unless you were born of God or you come from something else. There's no way that this. So tell me your secrets, because my teaching is terrible compared to yours. And Jesus doesn't even answer the question. Look what he says. He cuts straight to the point. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And i got to feel sorry for Nicodemus. Nowhere in this did he ever ask about the kingdom of God. He just wanted to know what was so different about you, Jesus. And and Jesus pulls a fast one. Jesus is an expert at not answering any questions. He'd be great at running for president. Just don't answer any questions and, and pivot, pivot, pivot. That's what Jesus does. Comes, how are you doing this? You can't see the kingdom of God right now until you're born again. And Nicodemus is like, whoa, that's like four questions later. And all of this, I think it's, Jesus is saying, look, I know what you're looking for here, Nicodemus. You're looking for something you can control. You're looking for something that that is tame. You're looking for something that you can put in your own little box and put on your shelf so that this serves your purpose as well. It's not going to work. In order for you to see what God is doing all around you in his kingdom, you're going to have to have a complete renewal. He uses this word born again, and if you watch the news or read the paper, the phrase born again is a phrase that has been drugged through the mud for the longest time. And we're almost afraid to say it because of the connotations that come with it. Oh, those born again Christians, I think it started back with Carter in the 70s, or probably even before that. There was always this derogatory title towards Christians. And so Christians have gotten away from saying it. The problem is, Jesus wasn't afraid to use it. It's been polluted by things that, that, shouldn't be, that shouldn't have touched it. It's a phrase that Jesus used, and Jesus used it a few times in John. It wasn't just a throwaway phrase for him. Jesus was telling him something new and something that we shouldn't shy away from. Born again is actually a good thing. Born again, the word again can be translated again. And that's the easy way to translate it. But it also can mean this, born from above. John is using it in a way to say, look, where Jesus is saying, look Nicodemus... You want to change. You want to see what's going on. You're going to have to be born from above. From above, meaning not something that you understand. We can control the things below. Those are easy to control. Jesus is saying, in order for you to do this, you're going to have to receive a complete newness in your life. It's going to be a complete transformation. It's going to come in a way that you can't control it. And you have to be born again. Nicodemus is in the same boat we are. For him, "born again" meant, well, I convert to Judaism. Was when, when someone were to convert to Judaism, they would be called a little child. They would be born again. But Jesus says, "No, no, no, this. You need to be born from above Nicodemus. You need to have more than just a single moment of conversion. Because here's what we do. We have, or maybe you don't, I know people who do, but they have this thing in the front of their Bible. I think mine has a space for it. It says, the day, uh, yep, the day that you received Christ. And we call that the day you were born again. And it's good to mark those days. It's good to know that on such and such a day, you became a Christian. They played this song, you went forward, you said that prayer, awesome. That's that's great. Mine was sitting in my parents' uh, uh, Coffee at my parents' coffee table in their house on Samantha Circle. The carpet was like an orange-brown. It was mid-'80s. Uh, the coffee table was, had, was like a, a fake wood, and I ran inside because John next door had an ACDC shirt on, and it depicted hell, and I didn't want to go there. And so I ran inside and my dad said, you got the hell scared out of you. This is great. And then we prayed. That's the day I was born again. And so that was written in the Bible that I don't have anymore that date. I remember it. My dad had a specific day when it happened. I have friends that know on this day I have was born again. And those days are significant. But for many, you're born again, but then it stops. Everything about Jesus ceases to progress after that day. Nothing happens afterwards. And for Nicodemus, born again meant I've become Jewish. I've entered into this new way of life and it stops there. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that's not how this is going to work. The born again is just a beginning point. You see babies in the room when they're born. That's just the start. They get bigger. They get louder. Uh, they, They go to the bathroom more. It's 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 a start of something new. It's not just that you're born and you cease to develop. This is what Jesus is getting at with Nicodemus. It's not just a single event, Nicodemus. It's a complete transformation that's ongoing for the rest of your life. And the capacity for you to follow Jesus is, is based on your capacity to continue to receive and transform and develop in that faith. Your discipleship. In Christ, to become more and more like Jesus is hinging on your ability to receive. And this is where we all find ourselves in some way or another identifying well with Nicodemus because there's times in our lives where we don't receive what God is doing for us very well. We put limits. We don't know what God is doing. We can't understand it or God works in a ways that we don't can't. We think God would never work in that way and so we stop. And when, when we realize that God is doing something different than what we want him to do, our receptions go down, our heart gets hard because God can't move the way that this is happening because that's not what I think God can do. And so we start building walls with our theologies of what can come in and what can come out and then... Our transformation and our pursuit of Jesus stops at that point. This is where Nicodemus was. We become legalists. We become uh, based on performance and we don't talk to those people because they don't believe the same thing we do. And now we are our enemies and now we're arguing and we've slipped into that. Nicodemus has this realization. That sort of life, that sort of faith, that sort of following Jesus can't work, doesn't work, won't work. Jesus is saying, look, you need to be born again. You need to be born from above. This is a new thing. And Nicodemus has this realization. And then you can see Nicodemus's paradigm start to crack a little bit. And then he begins to wrestle. Because when you have a realization, you begin to wrestle with it. You begin to, to, to realize that this doesn't work. Therefore, you have to change. And you start going through everything in your life that needs to change in order for the real thing to take effect. Nicodemus has this, and you can start seeing it in the way he starts asking questions. How can someone be born when they were old? It's a very good question. Surely they cannot enter into, uh, enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born again. And I, I think it comes down to our friend Nicodemus is here, has heard something completely different than what he's grew up thinking. How many of you have been in a situation where you have everything figured out, and then someone comes to you and just goes, poke And everything that you've had figured out just comes crumbling down. I went to a school for my undergrad, and they taught the Bible. We'll go over here. They taught the Bible in a way that looked great, and it had its nice little box. And then anybody who was outside of the borders of their box was not good. They didn't say hell, but they thought it. And they said, that person can't be a Christian, or they're less of a Christian because they're not in my little box, in my way of thinking. They think God is a different way. And so this is what I went to school with. This is how I grew up. I go to my first uh, year at my grad school at Azusa Pacific. I leave this box and I start walking over here. And everybody's over here going, you're going to be firmly planted in midair. You're not going to know Jesus. You're going to walk away from your faith. They're warning me. And so I walk into class because they accepted me. And I sit there. And then this teacher walks in. His name's Don Thorson. He's like 6'8". He has a white mullet. True story. It is a fantastic mullet. And, and he is a Viking, like you wouldn't believe he's a Viking. Uh, and he, he talked monotone and very low, and he was brilliant, and he was very intimidating. But within the first 20 minutes of class, he started poking holes in every single box that I knew. And I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, they were right. I'm not, I'm going to lose my faith, I'm going to do this. But then I started thinking, I'm having this realization, that wasn't the right way to live. And I start wrestling with this new way to live, this new way to approach God. I, had, I had made an appointment with him because he really screwed me up. And I, he, he asked me where I went to school, my undergrad, and I told him. And he went, <laughs> okay, and, and just kind of laughed at me. And and then he asked me what theology books I was reading, and they were none of the ones that he wrote. And uh, and he said, oh yeah, those are those are good coffee table reads or paperweights uh, or use them. And so he's just he's not being a jerk, but he's just showing me like. There's so much more here and it cracked my paradigm. Here's Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus, he has his answers. Jesus starts poking holes saying, that's not working, that's not working, that's not gonna work. And so you start asking these questions. How can, how can, how can this be? I can't do this, and Nicodemus does this. In the first four sentences, he asks these questions. In verse two, he says, no one can do these things. In verse four, how can they be be born when they're old? In verse nine, how can this be? He's trying to wrap his mind around something. He's hearing something brand new. For him, he's realizing and wrestling with the reality that he's been, he's been focused so long on what humans can do, what humans can understand, what they can be competent about, and he's never actually had a thoughtful, living relationship with the living, true, and breathing God. He shows us a trap that we fall into, this trap of human rationalism. That we believe only the things that we agree with. We believe in only the things that are logical. Only the things that we can explain. The problem is, as we look through scripture, whenever someone's trying to do that, they're trying to control a God that is uncontrollable. They're trying to tame God and put God into their own little jar so that they can have God made in their own image. Nicodemus is trying to do this, and, God, and Jesus is saying it's not going to work this way. You see it with the story of Jacob. He wrestles with his identity for most of his life. He finally comes to a realization as he's literally wrestling with God of who he is. And God says, what's your name? And for the first time in Jacob's life, he says, I'm Jacob. And God goes, cool, we're going to change your name now because it took you long enough. We're going to call you Israel. And then as the next morning dawns, Jacob says to God, well, what's your name? Naming something means that you have control over something. In the scriptures, in the Old Testament, when you gave a name to something, it meant that you owned it. And so when Jacob asked for God's name, he's not asking for like, hey, good match, good game, we wrestled for a long time, you won, what's your name? He's saying, what's your name? Because I want to control you. I want to have you in my box. And God never answers his question. And he moves on. You can't control him, Jacob. Jacob was trying to control what God was doing. Happens with Moses. Moses is tending sheep on the far side of the desert. In the burning bush. He walks up to it. God says, Take off your shoes. He takes off his shoes, walks up to the bush. The bush says, I've heard my people, I've seen them, I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to send you. Moses says, What? They have a little argument about it, and he says, No, I'm really going to send you. And then Moses goes, Cool. What's your name? Who, give, give me your name so I can I can you know put you neatly in this and God says I am. In other words I'm the person that you can't control. I'm the person that's been here for the longest time. I'm the one who's closer to you. you don't get to know my name. you don't get to, you don't get to know my name so you can control me. you get to know my name because you need to know who, who's driving this train who's in charge here Follow me don't follow your ways of thinking but we do this all the time. We might not ask for a name but we try and control the way we think about God and we try and put the way we think about God onto the way others think about God and then we try to build our theologies and our churches and our Christian lives around what we think God does. God can't be boxed in. He can't be controlled. He can't be defined by the way we define him. Uh, And so Jesus starts talking to him about this. See, Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, the spirit gives birth, The spirit gives birth to spirit. In other words, human life gives birth to human life. But what Nicodemus is after for, looking for, and what God is trying to give to Nicodemus is orchestrated by something beyond human life. It's not something that's controllable. He's trying to, or, he's trying to give him a life that is energized by God through the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, he says, You should know this, Nick. You're a teacher of the law. This shouldn't be a surprise to you. Yet it does surprise him, and it surprises us, because we wrestle with the same thing. The life that Nicodemus craves and the life that he comes from is one that's focused so much on church attendance and good deeds and correct doctrine. It's not, some, it's, it's not something to be grasped, or it's, or it's something to be grasped, it's something to be earned, it's something to be born into, but the life that Jesus is giving him is something much bigger. And this is what I love about this passage. Jesus goes on in verse 8. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with life born by the Spirit. This is what Jesus is getting at. And I was really hoping for a more windy day, but that tree is moving right now. Can you see the wind? You can't see the wind, but the wind's moving. Do you know where the wind came from? We have the high-pressure maps and everything, but do we know what moves the wind? We can't control the wind. Go out there and make it stop. It won't work. The word that's used for spirit and wind there are the two words. In in Hebrew, it's rock. And in Greek, it's the word pneuma. Uh, Pneuma is where we get uh, pneumatology, our study of our lungs, the study of the breath. And, And they all mean the word spirit. And what Jesus is talking about here is that there is a spirit to this faith that is deeper than your head knowledge. That the spirit's going to move and sometimes the spirit's going to move in ways which you never expected to move and you can't control it, Nicodemus. It's not something you can learn about. It's something that you have to watch. It's something that you have to discern. It's something that you experience and you follow and you respond to it. How many of you have ever uh, had a gust of wind come up to you and ask you for help? Ever happened to you? No. How many of you have ever had, a, had a, the breeze ask you for directions? Me either. Okay. Uh, how many of you have ever seen a storm sitting by the side of the freeway broken down trying to catch its breath? No. This is what Jesus is getting at. You can't, we can't control this stuff. The thing that Jesus is talking about, being born from above, it's ridiculous to think about we can control. It's ridiculous to think that, we, that it needs to seek our help. It's ridiculous to try and put our confines around it. It's invisible. It moves. And, and you don't notice it until it hits you. And then you begin to see its effects and everywhere around you. But for many of us, we wrestle with it, trying to catch the wind. Uh, it's a trick that I've used on my three-year-old, Judah, catch the breeze. It keeps him busy for 45 seconds, and it's wonderful. Catch the breeze. You can't. But when you try and catch it, when you try and chase it, what ends up happening you come back exhausted. Nicodemus is exhausted because he's been trying to bottle something up and control it. The wrestling match that Nicodemus is having needs to come to an end. And Jesus is coming to him saying, Nick, stop trying to get your arms around this thing. The Holy Spirit is sovereign. You can't manipulate it. You can't commandeer it. You can't force it. You can sense it. You can observe it, you can discern it, you can follow it, you can react to it. You have as much control over it as you do the wind. The best way that I can think about this is uh, the, are, is sort of like this. The, the best friends that you can have in Seattle are the ones with sailboats, right? Because you can go on their boat, but you didn't have to buy it. Uh, I have a friend who has a boat down in Sillshow, and the rig, the rig my entrance fee was a six-pack and chips. And the chips varied. And, sometimes, and so that's all I had to do. I got to go sailing. I got to, uh, to be out on the water. I got to experience that. There's something fun about sailing, especially when you don't have a big motor on the boat. Motorboats are loud, they're annoying, they smell, they can go through the currents and they cut through it. It's impressive. But it's kind of like forcing your way. With a sailboat, it feels like you're flying. How many of you have ever been sailing? It feels great. You get out, you put the sail up, you find the wind, you see which way it's going, you point the boat in the right direction so that it can catch the wind, and then you just let it go. And when the sails do its job, the boat leans and you feel the boat catch the water and catch the wind at the same time, and you just glide. If you try and manufacture wind when you're sailing, it's not going to work. You have to be able to catch it and when you catch it you have to discern it you watch it you react to it because sometimes you got to trim the sails you got to let out line you got to put up another sail you got to turn you got to tack you got to do all of these things in order to stay with it this is what Jesus is talking about here nicodemus is back in the sailboat trying to raise his sail and going and all he's going to do is hyperventilate and many of us do this we, we, with our lives. We get on our, the boats of our own life. We put it out to sea. We put up the sail. And then we try to do everything on our own power and our own strength. If we're holding on to things too tightly, we're grasping, we're wasting our energy, we're exhausted, we're hyperventilating. And Jesus is saying, that's not the life I have for you. Stop it. The life I have for you is one where you put the sail up and you listen and you react and you follow This is what I want you to do. I want you to stop wrestling and I want you to start responding to this. The wrestling match isn't what you're made for. No wonder you're so tired. No wonder you can't catch your breath. No wonder this Christian life is unsustainable for you. You're doing it under your own strength, under your own power, and you're missing the wind. The best part about sailing is experiencing the freedom that the wind is doing all the work. And you're just watching it and writing it. Nicodemus realizes this. He's wrestling with it. And then he starts to catch it. Something new is brewing in Nicodemus here. Look what he starts asking in verse 9. I love it. You can kind of, if I could draw his picture face, he'd be just like a, what? Like a jaw slacked, just shocked. How can this be? I bet the question kind of just drooled off of his mouth. I don't Get this, how can it be? It's not about grasping, it's not about standing, it's not about walking in in the right order. In other words, why would God do something like this? What would motivate, Nick is asking here, what would motivate God to have something like this happen to us? And then verse 16, it's the verse that we see on football games, on the sign, it's probably down at the Marathon right now. For God so loved. What motivated God? Those words. God so loved. Nicodemus has probably never heard those kind of words talked about with God in that order ever in his life. He's led many discussions around salvation. I bet you this is the first time that he heard about salvation and the sole basis of it was God so loved. There was no systems. There was no checkbox. There was no new code. There was no new rituals. There wasn't a specific prayer in a specific order, at a specific time. It was simply this God so loved. And then this phrase, and everyone who believes in him can have eternal life. This realization Nicodemus steps in from darkness into light. Could this God be this generous? It's not everyone who achieves. It's not everyone who is successful. It's not everyone who agrees. It's not everyone who follows in line. It's simply those who believe. For God so loved those who believe we have this hard time with belief we think that in order to believe you have to sit here and erase every single bit of doubt and if you have doubt at all you don't believe hard enough and so you start believing more and then you start wrestling with your belief and and then it just keeps going this repetitive circle i don't believe i doubt now i'm bad i shouldn't doubt and you start going down that path you start wrestling again you start trying to achieve that's not what belief here means it's translated "believe," but "believe" is a, one of those layered words, and they picked one that fit. If you look at it closely, I think I think it should read this: "Anyone who trusts, anyone who trusts in me, will have eternal life. Will be saved." Trust is different than believing. When I trust in something, it means I still have my doubts. I don't have all my, my answers in a row. I don't have all my, my everything laid out. I trust but I still am a little bit nervous about how this can go. Jesus says to Nicodemus, "I don't want, you don't need to have all the answers. You just need to trust me for this. He says to Thomas after he's been risen from the dead, Thomas, I don't care if you have doubts. Come, put your hand in my side. Trust me with your doubts. Trust me not going to exclude you because you can't answer all the right questions or answers everything in the right order this isn't what it's about it's about trusting it's an active following in the face of your doubts and this is not what Nicodemus is is used to he wants black and white and Jesus is saying all you have to do is trust and I think with that trusting he begins to see the light in his world he begins to see that this is this world is totally different and i think nicodemus learned something there he learns how to sing he learns how to have a faith that isn't based on an answer it learns how to have a faith that's not based on performance and there's a transformation that happens in nicodemus he shows up again i like think in john 9 but if you have your bibles he he really plays a prominent role in acts I'm sorry in john chapter 19 uh, in verse 38 he and a man named uh, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. But with Pilate's permission, he came and and took the body anyways. And here in verse 39. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, a man who earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 75 pounds. Here's something interesting about Nicodemus. On John 2, if you read John 2, you'll see that it's Passover season. And he sees Jesus after Passover. Passover is one of the high holidays. It's the, it's the holiday. It's their Super Bowl. And he, he, he sees Jesus after that. He's probably exhausted. And he comes and he finds Jesus. And he experiences this new light. One of the last times Nicodemus is talked to, it's the night before Passover. It's a different Passover for him now. Then he was concerned about rules, how he can be ritual or ceremonial clean so he can participate in Passover. This, in in John chapter 19, he's touching a dead body. You don't touch a dead body because now you're unclean for at least a couple days and you can't participate in what's happening in Passover. Passover. There are certain allowances for this, but this was a no-no for him to do. Something has switched in Nicodemus. And I think it's interesting that he's carrying 75 pounds of stuff, of myrrh and aloe. 75 pounds is about how much they would decorate a king with after the king had died. So this shows how important Jesus was to Nicodemus. 75 pounds of incense, 75 pounds of spices to prepare the body. I wonder if there was also 75 pounds worth of trying to do things on your own. 75 pounds of trying to, uh, uh, to, to, to have all the right answers, stuff that's been weighing him down. And now he comes to Passover a whole lot different than what he was before. And he puts them all with Jesus and said, I'm tired of trying and I'm gonna lay them here and I'm going to enjoy the ride. I'm gonna put my sail up. And I'm going to catch the wind and I'm not going to stand behind it and try to fill it with my own lungs. I'm going to do this the right way. And I wonder for many of us as we close this margin series, the drawn to the margins, how many of us in our face have put ourselves on the margins of faith because we don't understand it and we're trying so hard or we try and and limit, We we try and do and do and do in order to get something that we don't need to earn or something you can't earn how many of us have marginalized ourselves in that way and our faith is stalled or it's just not working or you're exhausted jesus says the same thing to you that he says to nicodemus it's not about trying harder it's not about gripping tighter it's actually about letting go and the motivation is this god's so loved so we don't have to st- we don't have to earn it it's already ours to receive Perhaps today it goes from a head knowledge to your heart. It goes from something you've only read about or something you've studied to something that you actually experience. would not you pray with me? Father, would you teach every single one of us in this room to sing? To follow your spirit? To be attentive to your calling, your leading? Lord, would you allow us uh, the ability to Release control. And when we release control, Lord, would we experience the freedom that comes from following you? May we learn your song. And learning your song, may we see your melodies, may we see how you write it, may we see the beauty that you have planned for every single one of our lives. May we receive it, open-handedly embrace it. Doubts and everything can come along. Our fear can come. You're not afraid of those questions. You're not afraid of our fears. Instead, you say, I can work with that. Mistakes and shame and paths and decisions that have been made and maybe decisions that are about to be made, you can handle those too. May we come to you and find the freedom that we're looking for. It's in your name.